Amen? That's the sermon. That's it right there. He is good, so praise him. Let's stand. Um, I'm so thankful to God for that song. Uh, that's one of the ones that we've written that's going to be on the new album that we're praying is going to be uh, available to you to worship to and to be encouraged by in June of this year. So um, I, I'm thankful for songs like that one. It continues to refine me and continues to remind me of the goodness of God and why He is worthy of praise. So today we're continuing our sermon series entitled Devoted. In the past uh, three months, we've been studying how we are to love God. And we began by looking first at how He has loved us. Larry started us in 1 John 4, reminding us of the sacrificial love of God for us in Christ. That Christ would be the propitiation for our sin. This is the way in which He loved us. Then Carson took us to Romans 8 where we were uh, shown that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we took a very difficult, hard look in the mirror of Hosea and realized how God has loved us undeservedly. Even when we've been unfaithful, He has remained faithful. So after seeing how He's loved us, the past four weeks before Easter, we were looking at how do we love him back. We looked at through obedience, uh, through loving his word. Uh, we looked at uh, loving him back by trusting in him fully. And today, we're going to be focusing in on how we love God back through worship. Specifically, specifically through singing. Now, I have a confession to make. I love singing. <laughs> I, I do. I know it's, sh it's shocking to all of you, but I do love singing. But I have an equally shocking statement. There are people in this world who don't like singing. <laughs> right. Exactly, Stu. That's what I thought. We'll call them the Flynn Riders of our world. You guys remember who Flynn Rider was from the movie Tangled? He is the only Disney character in history who has revolted against singing, ever. If that's you this morning, if you're, if you're a Flynn Rider, the great reformer Martin Luther wants to have a few words with you. Luther with his beret hat and his way of speaking, he loved congregational singing. He, Luther said that uh, only secondary to preaching is singing in the teaching of theology, in teaching us about God. Uh, and in one of, uh, in a foreword that he wrote on a collection of songs that were arranged for multiple voice, voice parts, this is what he said. Now, he lived a long time ago, so it's going to be a little bit thick. But I want you to get through what he's saying here. Listen to this. When a man's natural ability is wetted and polished to the extent that it becomes an art, then do we note the great, with great surprise the great and perfect wisdom of God in music, which is, after all, his product and his gift. 
We marvel when we hear music in which one voice sings a simple melody while three, four, or five other voices play and trip lustily around the voice that sings its simple melody and adorns this simple melody wonderfully with artistic musical effects, thus reminding us of a heavenly dance where all meet in a spirit of friendliness, caress, and embrace. This is the nice part of Luther. Then he says, a person who gives this some thought and yet does not regard it, speaking of music, as a marvelous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed. Does not even deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Now, it's at this point, it's at this point that I have to take issue with Martin Luther. Because the fact is, is that God gave the ass his bray, right? And as Lord Fly and the Dan Williams Orchestra have proven, even a donkey's bray can be musical. Listen to this. So sorry, Martin, but donkeys can be musical. Now, I, I hear, I hear the, what's going on in the heads of all our Flynn riders that are with us today. You're saying, Daniel, ultimately, I respect Martin Luther in, in spite of the fact he wears a beret. But I don't find him as my ultimate authority. Show me in Scripture where we are commanded to sing. To which I say, you ask for it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Sing praises to the Lord, O oh, you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. Emphasis added. <laughs> but you can't read that and not see it that way. I mean, I, I read Psalm 47, 6, and it reminds me of being at my son's baseball game. In that, he's on the bases, and the ball's been hit, and he knows that he's supposed to run, and he is running. But something inside of me has to yell, go, go, run, run. And he's running the bases thinking, yeah, I know, that's what I'm doing. But, but that's, the, that's the sound of the psalmist here. I mean, within that one sentence, he says, sing praises to God, sing praises. He says it like ten times. And this is just a sampling of the myriad of direct commands for us to lift up our voice in praise to the Lord. It's an undeniable fact that God has commanded us, all of us, the whole earth, 
to not just speak his worth, to not just tell of his might, but to lift our voices in song. This is one of the primary ways, church, that we show our love to God. Larry, a couple of weeks ago, gave us two questions that he said are most important for Christians to ask. He said, question number one is, does God really love me? And question two is, do I love him back? And he said, the answer to the second question really depends on how you answer the first. Does God really love me? Today, in Psalm 107, which is where we're going to be, the psalmist is going to do everything in his ability to show you how the Lord loves you, the steadfast love of the Lord. And then he is going to plead, he's going to beg us to offer praise to him. So, turn to Psalm 107. Uh, This is a psalm. It's a song. All the psalms are poetry meant for singing. But this could be described, this psalm could be described as having an introduction, four verses, four choruses, and an outro. Now, all my worship team members are totally tracking with me here. But for those of you who don't read music, basically what he does is he starts with a thesis statement. It's his introduction, and it is the thesis of the whole psalm. Then he's going to take four verses, and he's going to develop his thesis. He's going to expound on it. Um, So let's begin by looking at at the thesis, at the introduction to the song, verses one through three. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from east and from the west and from the north and from the south. I want you to notice the very first word of this psalm. Why do you begin a sentence with the word oh? Is that something you normally do? It's an interjection. It's one of those weird words. Let me give you an example. Two sentences that I'm going to say to my wife. Which of these, church, is she going to like better? Help me out, okay? Option number one, Lindsay, you look stunning today. I got a couple thumbs up. Option number two, oh, Lindsay, (laughs) you look stunning today. One or two? Two. The the psalmist doesn't say, give thanks to the Lord. He says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, as if to say, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. Please believe me. Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Also notice to whom the psalm is addressed. He is directing these comments to the redeemed, those who've been saved by the Lord, simply out of his mercy and his goodness. Charles Spurgeon comments on these verses, and he says this. He says, whatever others may think or say, 
the redeemed have overwhelming reasons for declaring the goodness of the Lord. Theirs is a peculiar redemption, and for it, they ought to render peculiar praise. The Redeemer is so glorious, the ransom price so immense, and the redemption so complete that they are under sevenfold obligations to give thanks unto the Lord and to exhort others to do so. This is the summary of what we're going to see in this entire psalm. He is saying, I'm going to remind you of how good God has been, how incredibly he has loved you, so that all the redeemed will sing of his steadfast love. So now he's going to expound on this theme by telling us four stories. Story number one is about those who are lost in the wilderness, wandering. Story number two is about prisoners held captive. Story number three is about those who through their sin have acquired sickness. And the last story is about mariners who are out at sea and they're caught in a great tempest. And I want to encourage you, church, though you may not have physically experienced these situations, I want you to see how figuratively they describe us spiritually. So let's begin with story number one, which begins in verse four. He says, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. The psalmist here is painting a very familiar picture for any Israelite. The chronicles of their 40 years of wandering in the desert are infamously recorded for us in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Lord had heard their cries of his people who were enslaved by Egypt. And he had miraculously delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh. And was now bringing them to a land of their own possession. One that is described as flowing with milk and honey. But rather than being grateful, they were a disgruntled people. They were complaining about the food that they were getting to eat. They complained about uh, how long they were having to wait. They complained about even the land that flowed with milk and honey because the people who lived there were too big. So Israel, who had just experienced 10 plagues of which they were spared and delivered out of, of which they, they walked through the Red Sea as it was parted, uh, Israel, who has been led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day, these people who were with the Lord all the time, their vision of the Lord got foggy. They forgot quickly what he had done and who he was. In church, an unclear view of who God is, is will kill worship. It will kill worship. A distorted view of God will kill worship. Lindsay and I, about 10 years ago, 
had the chance to go up to the Canadian Rockies and visit one of the most beautiful places on earth, Lake Louise. Uh, the colors in this picture are correct. My shirt is really that orange. But more importantly, that lake is that blue. It is beautiful. To get to Lake Louise, you have to, uh, you have to travel up some very windy roads. A couple of switchbacks, a couple of hairpin turns. And you come around a corner, and this is what you see. It is stunning. Now, imagine with me for a second um, that you're traveling up to see Lake Louise and you're going around these twists and turns. You make that hairpin turn where around the corner you should see this and rather than seeing this, it is covered in fog. You can't see a thing. The beauty of God is right in front of you. But the fog has totally distorted the view. And the fog for us is disbelief. It's worries. It's pride. It's greed. When we are discontent with God's provision like Israel was, or we have a distorted view of God in a way to say, God, you, you owe me something. And then we come to church and we worship, it's like getting up to this pinnacle of this cliff, coming around this hairpin turn and seeing fog and going, wow. It's not, it's not worship, it's just words. So how do you clear the fog so that the stunning beauty of God can be seen and your soul can respond to it? Can any of us clear fog? Can any of us look at the fog and say, be gone? No. But we do know the one who commands the winds. And he says in Psalm 135, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from storehouses. We can't break the fog, but God makes the clouds rise at the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what our wanderers do in our story. They cry out to the Lord and he delivers them. He makes their paths straight and leads them to cities to dwell in. Ask the Lord to break up the fog of your heart. And this is what happens. The wind of the Spirit starts to blow and the fog starts to lift. Why? Because he's merciful. Do the wanderers deserve saving? No. But he takes pleasure in showing them mercy. And this is what you see when the fog lifts. This is beautiful. This is stunning. But it's nothing compared to its creator. So how should these saved sojourners respond to this, this goodness of God? Verses 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. 
For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This is the chorus of verse 1. This is where if we were singing this song, the melody would crescendo, our voices would rise, and we would give thanks for the provision and salvation of God, for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Worshiping God, church, for his provision is one of the ways in which we love him back. Our next story takes us into a prison cell where we have captives waiting. He says, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness. <coughs> Excuse me, and the shadow of death, and burst their bonds apart. I want you to notice that the Lord is sovereignly orchestrating both the suffering and the deliverance of his people. Notice, they rebelled against him and spurned his counsel. So he, he weighed them down with hard labor. God would be just and right to leave us in our rebellion and allow us to reap the consequences. But mercifully, he brings in what we perceive as suffering and hardship that gives us clarity to see that we are fools to spurn his counsel. We are deceived to rebel against his words. Can you look back at your own spiritual journey and see how God has used suffering to humble you and to show you your idolatry. I've had the privilege of doing life with you now for 13 years. And I know you, North Wake. I know so many of your stories. And we're not as clean and polished as we would wish to be. There are stories of betrayal, of lust, of cheating, and lying. There are stories of addiction, of theft, of abuse and neglect. There are stories of hate and jealousy, of abandonment and loss. Our sins have imprisoned us and brought us great affliction. But the suffering that we experience from the consequences of our sin is a mercy from our God. It is the mercy of God that we have suffered for the bad choices that we have made. He's not punishing us. He's trying to deliver us from our own destruction. The most dire thing God could do would be to leave us in our sin unharmed and ignorant. It's his love that leads to repentance. And it's his love that turns those stories around as we are humbled, as we seek his face. I, I get to go home to Tennessee about twice a year. And I grew up in the same church uh, till, till we moved here for 20, 20 plus years. 
And uh, they ask me, every time I go back, someone asks me, how's your church? And I, said, I say, they're great. They're a bunch of messed up, amazing, redeemed people. And they say, really? And I said, yeah. The stories of people who have suffered in my church and who have walked it out faithfully, doing the hard things, are, are, are what's, it's what pushes my faith forward. It's why I give thanks to God that I'm there. Cry to the Lord in your trouble and your distress. Some of you are being crushed by the weight of your sin. And you feel that there's nothing you can do. You're at the end of your rope. I want you to see what the psalmist is showing us, that these lost sojourners, these prisoners held captive do, they cry out to the Lord in their distress. Jesus would say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same remedy for our wanderers in the desert is the same for our captives, is the same for us. They cry out to the Lord, and in their distress, He delivers them. He bursts their bonds apart. And hear the way that they are commanded to show their love toward their liberator. Here comes the chorus of story number two. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Modern day translation. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Our third story is one about people who've been plagued with sickness as a result of their sin. Starting in verse 17, he says, Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Here... God uses physical sickness to draw people back. The Hebrew in verse 18 can literally be translated, all manner of food abhors their soul. This is the plight of true sickness. Even the sustenance that the body really needs to fight, it doesn't want. But here's the amazing truth about sickness that, that I found in my own life. Uh, and how God uses sickness to show me my ingratitude. I am never so thankful for a day of health as just after having the flu for a week. You know, I wake up every day, and, I, and most days I'm well. But the Lord brings in sickness, and then all of a sudden I realize how good I've had it for the past year. 
my heart is so callous to the everyday mercies of waking up healthy that the way God gets my attention is by allowing me to experience sickness. How do we combat ingratitude in our hearts? By seeing the mercies of God and by giving thanks. Do you know how merciful God has been to you? Lamentations 3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The word new, right there, his mercies are new every morning, is the Hebrew word haras. And it means they've never before been experienced. Today's mercy is different from yesterday or the day before or the day before or the day before that. Just as the seasonal flu vaccine changes from year to year, God's mercy changes from day to day. It's a new strain of mercy for today. So try this, just try this little exercise to allow gratitude to well up in your hearts. Figure out how old you are, not by years, but by days. That's how many times you've been mercied anew by God. So, by the time you're 21, you've experienced 7,665 unique mercies. When you hit midlife, it numbers 14,600-something. By the time you reach retirement, God has shown you 23,725 Unique, different kinds of mercy. Do you see how steadfast the love of the Lord is for you? He has specific mercy just for today's trouble. When I think about it that way, worship just wells up in my heart. When I think about all the sickness that I've had that has been healed, worship wells up in my heart. And the psalmist commands them to give thanks. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Joy. Joy is the descriptive adjective to describe our songs. We've, we sung all about it, especially just this past Christmas. Joy, unspeakable joy, it rises in my soul, never lets me go. That kind of joy. Larry has coined a phrase that follows me everywhere I go, this Creswellian joy. <laughs> and interestingly enough, the, the identification and label to this quirk I have, has, has allowed some of you to approach me and say things uh, like, when I first met you, I wondered if you were for real. Like, is he really happy all the time? Is he really that excited all the time? I wish I could say yes. But the answer to that question is no. And I've got five witnesses that live with me right over there <laughs> that can confirm that. 
I have bad days just like you, and I'm in daily need of course correction. And do you know what? The lyrics to the songs that we sing are like the antidotes to what ails me because they reorient and reset my eyes on what the truth is. I, I don't think I could say it any better or more clearly than Stuart Hines said it. When, it. when I stop and when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. Now in light of that truth, what do I have to complain about? Why shouldn't I be filled with thanksgiving and joy? It's not so much a choice that I make to rejoice as it is a response to the truth that's just we've just sung. It's a reaction to the overwhelming, incomprehensible, steadfast love of God for you and for me. Our final scene takes place out at sea where a great tempest has been stirred up. In verse 23, the psalmist says, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. And their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their distress, and he delivered them. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. In their book, Law and Gospel, William McDavid, Ethan Richardson, and Paul Zoll tell this, give this situation. Imagine that you fall off the side of an ocean liner. And not knowing how to swim, you begin to drown. Someone on the deck spots you, flailing in the water, and throws you a life preserver. It lands directly in front of you 
and just before losing consciousness, you grab hold of it for dear life. They pull you up onto the deck. You cough the water out of your lungs. People gather around, rejoicing that you are safe and waiting expectantly while you regain your senses. After you finally catch your breath, you open your mouth and you say, Did you see the way I grabbed onto that life preserver? How tightly I held to it? You see the definition of my bicep as I was, the strength of my arm as you guys were pulling me up? I was all over that thing. (laughs) Needless to say, it would be bewildering and borderline insane for you to respond that way, to draw attention to the way that you cooperated with the rescue effort of saving your life blows the whole point of what happened away, which is that you were saved. A much more likely chain of events is that you would immediately seek out the person who threw the life preserver. You would thank them, not just superficially either. You would embrace them. You would buy their dinner. You might offer them your cabin. Gratitude is a natural response to salvation. It does not require coercion or encouragement to the extent that the individual understands what has happened. Gratitude will flow organically and abundantly from their heart. And gratitude is the commanded response of the mariners in our story. The chorus of story number four. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the saints. Church, the psalmist has gone out of his way today to show you the steadfast love of the Lord. And his great hope is that you would respond by worshiping him by offering him praise, by extolling him in the congregation of the people. The worship team's going to come, and they're going to lead us in doing just that. But as they do, let me briefly address two of the questions that this psalm may have risen. It seems that everyone in the psalm who calls on the Lord in their distress is saved. Reality seems to argue against that. Not everyone who is lost is found, or is in prison is freed, or is sick is healed, or is saved from a tempest. My, my first response would be to remind you of whom this psalm is addressed to. Remember, it is addressed to the redeemed, those whom the Lord has already saved from all of these calamities. The psalm is a retelling of their stories. Um, But the Bible also uses these same stories to paint and picture our own spiritual state. For instance, Jesus, the, the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells 
is a story about a lost son who is found, just like our wanderers in story number one. Galatians and Romans describes our sin as imprisoning us and how Christ's death and resurrection has freed us from sin's bondage, just like our captive in story number two. Jesus in Mark chapter 2 would describe sinners as those who are sick and in our need of a great physician, just like in story number three. And the Jesus, and Jesus is also the only person in history to have ever calmed a storm at sea by speaking to it. In spite of what you believe reality may be arguing, the word of God would say, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an offer to everyone. So the question that must be answered is, will I place my faith in the Lord? Will I call upon his name? Do I trust that he's the only one that can deliver me and save me? It's the most important question you will ever be asked, and you're being asked it right now. Don't leave this place today without having an answer for it. Because to not place your faith in Christ is to not have faith. It's just to have faith placed somewhere else. Another common quandary that comes specifically from all our Flynn riders in the room, and I actually know a couple of you. You've said things to me just like this. Daniel, it's not that I don't like to sing. It's that I don't like hearing myself sing. It sounds so bad. You have no idea how bad it is. I make the braying of a donkey sound good. Here's the thing I want you to consider. You are not an accident. The color of your eyes, the length of your fingers, the sound of your voice were given to you by a God who loves you, by a God who wants you to offer all of them in praise to Him. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Sing praises to the Lord in perfect pitch. Sing praises to the Lord as long as you don't sound like a donkey. Nowhere. In fact, the Bible says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In fact, the Bible speaks of all of creation offering praise to God. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And not just the skies, but the hills and the rivers. Let the rivers clap their hands 